Alex, I have been thinking about my mortgage recently. Your mortgage. I have a two-bedroom apartment in Brooklyn, and I got the mortgage in 2009 from Wells Fargo. Good timing. Yeah. Well, I know very well who has my mortgage because every single month, the beginning of the month, Wells Fargo takes a large chunk out of my bank account. So I was on the phone the other day with a really nice guy from the bank, and, and he was he was really quite fawning. He was trying to get me to refinance, and he was like, we just love to have you as a customer here at Wells Fargo. You're an honored customer. We can get you a really good rate, la, 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 all this sort of stuff. And after I talked to him, I looked something up online. I want you to take a look at this right here. Okay. The plot is about to thicken here, right? Absolutely. I'm looking at a piece of paper, and it says, so this is who owns your mortgage, and you said it was Wells Fargo. That is not the name that's on this paper right here. No. Apparently... According to this document that I got online, Wells Fargo sold my mortgage to Freddie Mac back in 2009. About 37 days after I signed the papers, they resold my mortgage to somebody else, Freddie Mac. Freddie Mac. So what that means is that I own your mortgage and millions of other taxpayers in America. You should love to have me as a customer. I pay very regularly. (laughs) You seem very responsible. Absolutely. So the mortgage giant Freddie Mac and its corporate sister Fannie Mae were, of course, taken over by the federal government in 2008. It was big news because it was, in fact, the precipitating event of the financial crisis. So we do remember this very well. And, And I bring this up. In fact, I was looking my mortgage up specifically because Fannie and Freddie were in the news again this week. You know that we still own them. The taxpayer still owns Fannie and Freddie. I did. But when I read that same news and, and when that news came up, I was like, oh, right. We still own them, don't we? Yeah. yeah. No one has figured out in the last five years what to do with them. And it's this huge, massive obligation. They control most of the mortgages in the country, trillions of dollars worth of mortgages. And it's all on our backs, U.S. taxpayers' backs. But last week, a group of U.S. senators said, OK, <laughs> it is finally time to deal with this. It has been long enough. This, in many ways, is the last piece of financial reform business that's still undone. No one would have expected that we'd be five years later and Fannie and Freddie still under total government control. That's Senator Mark Warner from Virginia. He and a bunch of colleagues, Republican and Democrat, have recently unveiled a plan to get the U.S. out of the mortgage business. Well, at least most of the way out. And to fully understand what a huge undertaking huge, this is. Huge. Gigantic. And why it took five years to even come up with a starting plan. It helps to understand what happened. What strange, perverse, crazy entities Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were and still are. Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Robert Smith. Today on the program, we are going to retell the history of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, a story that you, Alex, did for us a couple of years ago. And after we play it, we're going to tell you how those senators just might have figured out a way out of this whole mess. So I'm going to start us off here with a statistic. 90% of mortgages made in the United States today are backed by the U.S. government. That's right, 90%. Nine out of 10 home buyers get their loans because of the U.S. government. The U.S. mortgage market, all $1.5 trillion of it, is effectively a state-run industry. And it became a state-run industry in 2008 when the government took over the mortgage giants Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And the story of how these mortgage giants became so large that they had to get taken over by the U.S. government is a fascinating tale, and I'm going to be telling it today. And it starts back in the Great Depression. President Roosevelt was looking for a way to help poor people get houses, and so he started an agency that later got nicknamed Fannie Mae to make mortgages more available. For decades, Fannie Mae remained part of the budget. Until 1968 
when President Lyndon Johnson was facing big deficits due to the Vietnam War. Here's journalist Joe Nocera. So Fannie was sort of spun off um, as a div- <laughs> almost like a corporate spinoff. And there really was nothing like it in American life. By privatizing Fannie Mae, Johnson had ushered into existence perhaps the strangest hybrid entity in the annals of American finance. It was an organization created by the government with an explicitly public mission, but that behaved exactly like a private corporation, with highly paid executives, profits going directly to private owners. Several years later, the government created a second nearly identical entity, Freddie Mac, to give Fannie Mae some competition. Karen Petru is an analyst who's studied Fannie and Freddie for decades, and she says this strange hybrid status gave Fannie and Freddie a very real advantage over other traditional companies because there was this belief about them. That even though Fannie and Freddie were private, shareholder-owned companies where the CEOs made millions and investors often made a lot of money, they were backed by the full faith and credit of the U.S. government. Sure, it wasn't official, but it was as good as gold. Gold indeed. Just as it's easier to get a loan if you have a rich relative cosign, the financial world assumed that since the U.S. government had given birth to Fannie and Freddie, in a crisis, it would act like the rich parent it was and bail them out. And so, because of this implicit government guarantee, as it came to be called, Fannie and Freddie had this huge advantage in the marketplace. And to understand why, it helps to understand what Fannie and Freddie actually do. Okay, so I'm going to explain it. I'm going to start with you. You want to buy a house. You go to the bank. The bank gives you a mortgage. But the bank doesn't hold on to your mortgage. It turns around and sells the mortgage to Fannie or Freddie. Fannie and Freddie bundle your mortgage up with a bunch of other mortgages like yours and sell that bundle, technical name, mortgage-backed security, to investors around the world. And this is the key. The reason those investors around the world want to buy these bundles of mortgages from Fannie and Freddie, Fannie and Freddie guarantee them. They say, even if you and the other homeowners stop making their payments, global investors will still get paid. Buy Fannie and Freddie. That is their guarantee. Now, obviously, if those global investors believe that the U.S. government is standing behind that guarantee, it becomes a lot more valuable. Starting in the 80s and continuing for the next two decades, Fannie and Freddie used this belief, this implicit guarantee, to grow into two of the largest and most successful companies in U.S. history. Here's Bethany McLean. Fannie and Freddie were always among the most profitable companies in the S&P 500, if not the most profitable, double or triple that of most banks. But even though the government guarantee had turned Fannie and Freddie into two of the largest and most powerful companies in U.S. history, everywhere you turned, people denied that the guarantee actually existed. For instance, at the top of every security that Fannie and Freddie issued, right there in big black letters, it said, this security is not backed by the U.S. government. High-powered government officials denied it, from George Bush's former Treasury Secretary John Snow to the powerful Democratic Congressman Barney Frank. Here he is in September 2003. There is no guarantee. There's no explicit guarantee. There's no implicit guarantee. There's no wink and nod guarantee. Invest in you on your own. Nobody who invests in them should come looking at me for a nickel, and uh, nor anybody else in the federal government. And adding to the chorus of denial, says journalist Joe Nocera, were Fannie and Freddie themselves. They would adamantly uh, lash back at anybody who argued that there was, in fact, a government subsidy. That's what they said in public anyway. But to the people who mattered, the ones who were buying Fannie and Freddie securities, the company said something else entirely. 
Scott Simon was one of those buyers. He heads the mortgage department at PIMCO, the world's largest bond manager, and one of the biggest buyers of Fannie and Freddie securities. Fannie and Freddie, in you know, beings with investors, whether it was us or anybody else, essentially just would sort of laugh at it and say, well, you, you know the government will stand behind us. They would literally say that to you as, as, as investors? I think they said that to most investors. You know, they would sort of wink and nod and just sort of say something along the lines of, well, you know the government can't let us go. They kept all the money they made, and they passed on the risk to the taxpayer in case of a, a downside event. Richard Baker was a congressman from Louisiana and a longtime critic of Fannie and Freddie. And he was especially concerned about a downside event because Fannie and Freddie were especially unprepared for one. In the language of finance, they didn't have enough capital. Capital is the money financial institutions use as a buffer in case of emergency. And Fannie and Freddie were allowed to hold less than half as much capital as regular banks. This made them riskier, but also more profitable. These low capital requirements, combined with the implicit government guarantee, amounted to a giant subsidy for Fannie and Freddie. And for years, Baker tried to get rid of the subsidy to make Fannie and Freddie hold more capital. And for years, Fannie and Freddie shot him down. Nothing before or ever since, in my judgment, has ever been as effective as their lobbying strategy, breadth, and width. Fannie and Freddie had the most formidable lobbying machines known to man. Again, analyst Karen Petru. That was an institutionalized facet of both of their corporate cultures. If you are a financial services industry lobbyist uh, available for duty in the 1990s and you were not either hired by Fannie or Freddie, I hate to say it now in historical retrospect, but you were really not uh, much of a player. And that again was Richard Baker. The Fannie Mae lobbying operation in particular was legendary, but occasionally congressmen would have enough courage to actually talk about it in public. We should have done better. We have once again left the public purse exposed to the risk of capital greed and corporate mismanagement. Like Jake Pickle, Democrat from Texas. Here he is in 1992. Pickle had worked to impose stricter capital requirements on Fannie and Freddie, which he called by their technical name, the GSEs. His efforts were defeated. I know the pressures that have been brought to bear on the members and the staff of the banking committee. I've watched strong voices in the administration turn silent. I deeply wish we could go further. But in the face of enormous pressure by the GSEs, I'm not at all sure that we can do, do better at this time. So the, today, I think the GSEs may celebrate some kind of a victory. Private fortunes will be or can be made by trading on the implicit federal guarantee these GSEs enjoy. But the struggle to hold them will come a later day. We used to call them privately Fortress Fannie Mae. Again, Karen Petru. As an analyst, she would often give expert testimony on Capitol Hill saying Fannie and Freddie didn't have enough capital. Fannie and Freddie didn't like that. Fortress Fannie Mae. It's partly because the corporate headquarters looked like that, but I think it was much more because they really were that. They had this everyone who doesn't agree with us is an enemy view. Now, this is the point in the story where usually you'd expect to hear denials from Fannie and Freddie saying, we weren't that bad, tales about our lobbying are exaggerated. Not so. Ladies and gentlemen... Here's Fannie Mae's chief lobbyist, who left the company in 2004, Bill Maloney. It was always an us, a very us against them. You know, that was just the Fannie Mae. We, we, you know, we. I, I joked with you. You know, if you punch my brother, I'll burn down your house. Uh, 
I want to kill them, bury them, and piss on their graves. Bill Maloney had many ways to kill them, bury them, and you know the rest. And a lot of these ways went beyond just plain lobbying dollars. For example, he banded together with realtors and home builders to form what people called the home ownership mafia. And he would remind Congress people every chance he got, oh, and by the way, a third to a half of the people in the country got their homes through us. And homeowners, they vote. Here's journalist Joe Nocera. Anytime there was a congressional hearing that was even slightly controversial surrounding Fannie Mae, you know, every congressman at that hearing would get a fanny pack, which was a list, a pretty fat list, of every mortgage in the person's district that had been guaranteed by Fannie Mae. So the congressman comes in, he sees the fanny pack. It's pretty darn hard to criticize Fannie Mae from your, from your seat. But the main reason Bill Maloney and his colleagues were so cutthroat, they believed what they were selling. They saw themselves as part and parcel of the American dream. Congress had set goals for Fannie and Freddie, saying that a third to a half of the loans they dealt with were supposed to go to low and moderate income people. So Bill Maloney argued, sure, we get special treatment, but that's because we are special. We help regular people achieve the American dream of home ownership. And many people I talked to within the companies spoke proudly of this affordability mission, believed it. People like Barry Zegas, a former Fannie Mae executive. When we did employee surveys at Fannie Mae during this period of time, which we did on a regular basis, like any big company does, um, it, was, it, it, it kept coming up again and again and again that the motivation for, for the employees in the organization was knowing they were working on something that was important to everyday people, that was about a mission, and that was making a difference in communities and in people's lives. And that was a very big part of the culture of the organization. That, says Bill Maloney, is what made the lobbying effort so successful. Literally to a person from cafeteria workers on up, we felt we were the most important thing in the nation with regard to helping low, moderate, middle-income families afford home ownership. This view that Fannie and Freddie were private companies serving a public mission also persuaded a lot of people in Congress. It seemed like a bargain. All Congress had to do was make it easier for Fannie and Freddie to do their thing, and then they would use their massive wealth to help regular people get homes. But this argument drove a certain group of economists and other critics crazy. They just didn't believe it. People like Dwight Jaffe, an economist at UC Berkeley, who spent his career studying the U.S. housing market, comparing it to housing markets in other countries where they have nothing like Fannie and Freddie. And he's come to a stark conclusion about the two companies. All of the money and all of the tax benefits and all of the Fannie and Freddie costs that we've poured into it have come to zero in terms of having any observable effect on our home ownership rates. Our rates are the same as, as countries that never put a penny of government resources into it. For Dwight Jaffe, it was clear. Fannie and Freddie were getting a huge subsidy. They didn't have to hold as much capital as other companies. They made more money that way. They had this implicit guarantee that also helped them make more money. But, he says, this subsidy... It didn't go to the people Fannie and Freddie said it went to, low- and middle-income home buyers. How could Fannie and Freddie have been so counterproductive to actually take a government subsidy and have no benefits? And the answer is the shareholders of Fannie and Freddie and the employees of Fannie and Freddie pocketed every penny of the subsidy. And they left the borrowers and the investors no better off than they would have been in a private market, except that when we had the bailouts, of course, now we're all poorer because of Fannie and Freddie. Breaking news, the market's reacting to the big news on Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac as the government steps in. Let's get you through the numbers. In the uh, end, the implicit guarantee was a self-fulfilling prophecy. Fannie and Freddie had used the belief by the rest of the world that they were too big to fail, to become too big to fail. 
In the fall of 2008, Fannie and Freddie between them owned or guaranteed over $5 trillion worth of mortgages. They had a very, very tiny layer of capital, and homeowners were starting to default in record numbers. Defaults the companies would have to make good on. They were on the hook for literally trillions of dollars to foreign governments, huge pension funds, a good chunk of the world's banking system. Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson said today the stakes were too big not to act. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are so large and so interwoven in our financial system that a failure of either of them would cause great turmoil here at home and around the globe. And so, just as decades of critics had predicted, and just as Fannie and Freddie themselves had secretly promised, the U.S. government came in and bailed them out. It is the largest ever takeover of a financial institution by the federal government in American history. But with home prices... When ironing in all of this, Bill Maloney and the other Fannie and Freddie lobbyists had been too successful at their jobs. If they hadn't fought off congressional efforts to make Fannie and Freddie hold more capital, to make them safer but less profitable, the companies might have been able to withstand the turmoil in the housing market. They might not have needed a government bailout in the first place. Planet Money's Alex Bloomberg from 2011 and now 2013. Alex Bloomberg, where do we sit? So basically, we're in the same exact position. The implicit government guarantee that I was talking about was made glaringly explicit. And we still own Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And we're trying to figure out what to do with them. Yeah, it's like the U.S. government created these children. They sent them out into the world. They said, we're going to have your back. And then they brought them back. They're living in the basement. And the government doesn't know quite what to do with them. They want to kick them out. And so, as we said at the very beginning, there are some people who are starting to think about how do you unwind all of this history we just heard? Right. And we've been down this road in many other industries. We, we bailed out the banks. We bailed out GM. We bailed out AIG. And in that, it's been fairly clear. You sort of get them back up and running, and then you sell the shares. The government just gets out of the business as quickly as possible. We're still in it a little bit with GM, but that's been the model. But they don't want to do that with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac for all the reasons we just articulated in this, which is it never really worked that well in the first place. There were all of these huge problems. They don't want to all of a sudden kick out Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and say, go back to business as usual, because business as usual is what got them in trouble in the first place. Also, there's another reason. The government is now making a lot of money with Fannie and Freddie, right? So it's kind of amazing. Yeah. So now that they own them and they are now once again sort of returning to profitability, People are paying their mortgages. That mortgage money is going to the coffers of Fannie and Freddie. It used to go to the private shareholders. Now it's going to the U.S. Treasury. So there is sort of every incentive in the world to not talk about Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac because we're actually making money off of them. But there is a problem with that, which is times are relatively good right now in the housing market. It is expanding. But if there's another housing crash, and there is always another housing crash. There's just nothing that stands between the taxpayer and a bailout. All those private investors who at least had some minor share in Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac who lost their money, they're not around anymore. The entire burden of the U.S. mortgage system is on the back of the taxpayers. Right. So there's good reasons not to return Fannie and Freddie to the way they were before. There's good reasons not to have the government maintain complete ownership. Why not just get rid of them entirely, turn the market entirely private? What, free enterprise? Just like let investors and banks make loans to whoever they want and be responsible for those loans? That does work in other areas besides housing. Well, it works in a lot of the world. I mean, there are a lot of countries that do not have the kind of system that we have, you know, and certainly if you're going to get up 
a car loan or something. There's no government standing behind you protecting every single car loan in America. And there's reasons to think that it could work here, too. The problem is getting there, getting from where we are now to a purely free market or close to free market system. It would be a very rocky transition. People have gotten used to the system that involves a government guarantee. And a lot of the features that we sort of have come to expect in our housing market might not exist in a purely free market housing market. For example, what kind of mortgage do you have? I have a 30-year mortgage. That'd be gone, probably. Like a 30-year mortgage is a feature entirely of a government guarantee. A private market isn't going to give you a 30-year yeah, mortgage. private market does not want to track me for 30 years <laughs> and trust me for that amount of time. Right. And if they did, it would probably be a lot more expensive than the rate you're paying right now. So into this conundrum where there is no good path out came, um, and I'll say it, some rather brave senators who are brave, first of all, to be on the finance committee of the U.S. Senate, and secondly, brave to actually talk about a problem that no one else wants to talk about. And we spoke with them this week. Mark Warner, he's a Democrat from Virginia, and Bob Corker, he's Republican from Tennessee. And they came up with a, it's really a preliminary plan at this point, but it is a way to sort of unwind the system a little bit, to let a little bit of the free market come back into the mortgage system, but to not take government completely out of the business. And the plan is essentially, I'll say it, to murder Fannie and Freddie. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Slowly over time and eventually replace it with a purely government-run insurance system, basically a government system like the FDIC, which insures our bank deposits. This would insure our mortgages. And I know it sounds a little bit the same, right? There's still a government guarantee on mortgage. If I stop paying, there's still a government at some point standing behind it. But an insurance system is very different because we know how to run an insurance system. Right. And also, we are making it explicit. It's no longer just an implicit guarantee. It's an actual explicit guarantee. And then third... The government is saying, okay, we're going to provide the insurance, but you guys, you have to be a lot safer than you were in the past. We're going to require something like a 20% down payment from all homeowners for to insure this mortgage. And then the banks that are taking these mortgages and putting them together, we're going to require you to have some skin in the game too. And we were talking with Bethany McLean, who was in your piece. We, we called her back this week to talk to her about this legislation. And she said, listen the risk is still the same in mortgages. What this plan does is move the risk around. It's not just on the government now. There will be a little bit of risk on the homeowner who has to sort of put more skin in the game. And there's going to be more risk on private investors who have to put money down, like actual capital, in order to make sure that if another housing crisis happens, that they're going to take some of the hit too. Right. And so so basically the idea is, the government's on the hook, sure, but we at least know exactly how much we're on the hook for, and we hope we are not as on the hook as we were before. Um, still. This plan is such a long shot because <laughs> basically you're asking for shared sacrifice to solve a problem which technically doesn't exist anymore because, you know, the housing market's expanding. Right. These guys, and I really do feel for these senators because they're thinking down the road six, seven, eight years when there might be another crisis, but right now everyone's kind of making out well in the current system. And so these senators are saying, you know, we need more from homeowners. We need more from the banks. We need skin in the game from all of you. And it's a particularly tough sell right now. And for that reason, Bethany McLean, when we talked to her this week, she was starting to think that maybe the unthinkable might eventually happen. 
Right. Well, the funniest thing is, well, funny (laughs) in a sad sort of way, right at the wake of the crisis, one of my smartest sources on all this, who is a veteran of the GSE wars in Washington, said to me, you know what's going to happen? And I said, what? And he said, nothing. For years and years, nothing. And then finally, everybody's going to shrug their shoulders, and Fannie and Freddie are going to look profitable again, and they're going to say, what was so bad about the old system? And nothing is going to change. And I said, no way. And now I'm starting to wonder if he was right. (laughs) So that's a pretty cynical note from Bethany McLean to end our podcast on. Yeah, but if you've spent your entire career sort of studying the U.S. mortgage system from its beginning in the Great Depression to its end in the Great Recession. I think you've earned the right to be cynical. Like the legend of the phoenix All ends with beginnings What keeps the planet spinning As always, we'd love to hear what you think of the show. You can email us, planetmoney at npr.org. Or find us on Twitter, Facebook, or at our blog, planetmoney.com, where we'll have a link to Bethany McLean's book, along with Joan O'Sara, All the Devils Are Here. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Robert Smith. Thanks for listening. We've come to 